Hello and welcome to The Point of Everything. Today on the show, interviews with brand new act, Sister Phoenix, aka Sunita and Jess Cav, formerly of Shukra and Bark, respectively, and a chat with Dashoda as well, who releases his debut EP, Never Enough Today, Wednesday, March 15th, and launches it tonight with a show at Workman Cellar in Dublin. So if you're listening in time and looking for something to do tonight, then yes, go to that gig. It should be great. Support comes from Jackie Beverly, who was on episode 233 of the TPOE podcast last year and guests on the aforementioned Deshoda EP, Never Enough. More on that and on, but let's start with the Choice Music Prize, which took place at Vicker Street last Thursday, March 9th. You might have heard the preview pod we did with Tilt's John Barker a couple of weeks ago in which I predicted it would come down to Fontaine's DC and CMAT 4 album of the year and indeed it did with CMAT taking the crown for her debut record If My Wife Knew I'd Be Dead. I guess one of the disappointments of the night itself is that so many nominees were absent only five of the ten acts performed on the night but that's a good thing really if you think about it because it shows just how busy all the acts are, whether it's touring the US like Circa Richardson or playing in Amsterdam like CMAT or, you know, being one of the biggest acts in the world, certainly one of the biggest acts around from Ireland at the moment in Dermot Kennedy. On the night, I really enjoyed the performances by Anamika and Aoife Nessa Francis and I thought Pillow Queens just showed how great a live act they are. Thumper and Just Mustard also put on similarly strong showings, so if you get a chance to catch any of them live, you'd be a fool not to. That's what's nice about the Choice Prize, you get to see a little bit of a lot of acts. As mentioned on the preview podcast, there were a couple of new awards handed out at this year's Choice Prize. Irish Artist of the Year went to Fontaine's DC and Connor Curley from the band was on hand to accept it. Here is his speech. Thank you very much. Uh, um, <laughs> um, obviously, I'm not very good at doing this on my own. I usually have uh, four other individuals with me. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I just want to say this is incredible. Honestly, to see an award with Irish on it is uh, is uh, truly amazing because, like. Uh, I think as a band, everything that we've done and all the work that we've done, uh, being Irish and being Irish musicians has been like the most important thing to us and it's like come across in all of our songs and like it's our biggest inspiration and uh, to be in the room tonight with like so many great Irish musicians is uh, truly profound and uh, you know around every corner is a good friend and um, so I say to everyone in the room tonight just to keep the heart and uh, yeah, thank you very much. Uh. Classic Irish album went to Sinead O'Connor for Lion and the Cobra. She was introduced on stage by Dave Fanning. Crikey, okay. Thank you very much. Um, 
Thank you very much indeed. This is not for me, this is for somebody else. I'll tell you, I want to tell you a 20 second story. Here goes. Back in the 1980s, going way back, there was a band called Into Anua and they had a lead singer, but they couldn't go on tour because the lead singer was too young. She was 16. So she went off to make a solo album. And when she made the solo album, she was told she's not going to be able to produce this album. And she said, yes, I am. And she said, I will definitely be producing this album. And she did. It became a huge hit. It was called The Lion and the Cobra. And then... The next album was what everybody was talking about. When I heard the next album first, first thing I heard was uh, The Last Day of Our Acquaintance. I thought it was brilliant. And then Black Boys on Mopeds, brilliant stuff about black people being harassed by the cops in London. A kid was killed in a, in a police station in London. And then there was stuff like, the, yeah, the very first track, 400 years old, I'm Stretched on Your Grave. Every track different right across the board. Fantastic, right? And, oh yeah, I forgot the most important song probably. She made the greatest love song in the history of music by taking Prince's song and making it her own completely. And this is the album. This is the album that we're talking about. So, I do not want what I haven't got is the name of the album. That's the one. It's the inaugural, look, the Classic Album Award 2023. And I don't want you to sit there. Would you stand up for Sinead O'Connor? Uh, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thanks. Um, I'm really delighted with this, thanks. And I want to dedicate it um, to each and every member of Ireland's refugee community. Now, um, uh, not just the Ukrainian ones. And um, you're very welcome in Ireland. Mashallah. And, and I love you very much and I wish you happiness. Thank you. And after CMAT's debut with My Wife Knew I'd Be Dead was named Irish Album of the Year, she had drag queen Lavender on hand to read out her acceptance speech, which I thought was just brilliant. It's a little long, but well worth listening to. I know what you're all thinking. CMAT's a lot taller in person. But as... They said, Kira cannot be here tonight. She has touring commitments, and I promise that she has touring commitments and she's not tied up in the boot of my car. <laughs> so that I could be here and glamorous. So Kira did prepare a few words if she won. So I get to gently, I get to gently take them out of my cleavage. The word genius gets thrown around. <clears throat> the word genius gets thrown around a lot these days. But I think this finally proves that I am one. If you had told me three years ago when I was working in Bewley's that I would win the Choice Music Prize with my first album, I would have definitely believed you. Because I am delusional. But proven grandeur aside, this is an enormous honor and a childhood dream of mine. Come true, I should have pre-read this. And I am so proud to have beat out all of my brave competitors with an album that features six, yes six, I was shocked at this, songs that make reference to my diet coke addiction. 
Before I thank anyone, I would like to apologise to the good people of the Choice Awards for my family, who are present. And who I can only imagine have been the most disruptive and chaotic force the awards have ever witnessed. Now, I would like to thank my family, who I love very much. Colm Conlon, the very lovely Willie, Jamie, Emily, Bella, Ian, and many other loved ones who I am probably forgetting for always trying and failing to lovingly humble me. Special thanks to Lavender. I've heard she's beautiful. Maura Dara and Miss Viola Gavis. My muses, my angels, my disgusting aunties. Thank you for being the best collaborators that a reasonable amount of money can buy. Ronan Keeley, a.k.a. Junior Brother, who has inspired me to be a better songwriter since I first met him when I was 19 doing the open mic night rounds, and who should have absolutely been nominated for the Choice Prize, by the way. To my wonderful friend, Ollie Deacon, who made this record with me in his family home, I worked with him for the first time when I was 18 years old, and I remember thinking that he was the first man to ever listen to me. <laughs> Lastly, most importantly, the person who deserves the most credit and the biggest thanks for, all, for this record is Mr. Barry O'Donoghue. Come on, give it up for Barry, come on. He found me, post-return from England and mid-mental collapse, playing a show upstairs in the workman's club, still wearing my work clothes. I told him that I wanted to be a pop star, and he was like, OK, sure. And that was the first time I believed it was possible, and I wouldn't be here without him. And also, he has impeccable, has impeccable taste in cardigans, and that is not to go unacknowledged. Thank you so much for this award. I cannot wait to hold it in my hands and cradle it like a newborn baby. Perhaps I will buy a pram for it and push it around Dublin 15 for the rest of my life. Lots and lots of love, CMAT. So congrats to all of the winners on Choice Music Prize Night. I'm already collating album of the year lists and opinions for next year's Choice Prize. You can take that as a joke if you want, but just know I'm being pretty serious. I don't think Sister Phoenix have album plans right now. They're focused on a couple of EP releases this year, but they unveiled their debut track, Benefactor of Love, last week, which acts as a great introduction. Sister Phoenix is Sunita, formerly of Shukra, and Jess Cav, formerly of Bark, both of whom have also performed with a number of other acts. Indeed, I talked to them via Zoom at the Sugar Club before they were performing with Toshin as part of her Aretha Franklin tribute show that's toured Ireland in the past couple of weeks. So a relatively 
short chat, about 15, 17 minutes, and you'll hear Sunita and Jess talk about getting the Music Industry Stimulus Program Grant, MISP, during lockdown and how that kind of kick-started things for them, working with producers Thomas Donahue and Jeff Warner-Clayton as the Sister Phoenix Project came together. And it all began with a walk up Kalini Hill in 2020 when Jess turned to Sunita in an inspired moment and exclaimed, we should write a disco banger together. Let's take a listen to Benefactor of Love and then get into the chat, which had a little bit of background noise. You'll hear a little bit of drums here, maybe a little bit of trumpet there. Toshin's band was tuning up in the background, but we made it work. sounds like the band was started in lockdown born in lockdown it says it started with a walk up Kalini hill in 2020 tell me about that day that fateful day that you decided to go for a walk together yeah it was myself sunita and and julie uh, julie hawk. julie hawk of hawk and uh yeah it was one of those kind of you know lockdown days where we were like right come on let's just get out of the house and hang out and try and socialize and it was a really beautiful sunny day and yeah, I think we just got into really interesting discussions about what it was to be in, you know, female fronted bands and and how what our experiences were like over the last kind of couple of years. And kind of Bark was was kind of winding, winding, winding up, winding down. Bark was finishing up and and so was Shukra. And as a kind of a half joke at the end of the the walk, I kind of said to Cena, I was like, let's do like a big disco banger, just yeah let's just do some cool tunes and um yeah that was the that was the beginning of it I guess 
is that what Benefactor of Love is? Is that the disco banger that you had in your mind? I wouldn't say it's exactly that. I think that we did think we were going to go down more of a traditional disco route, really. Mm -hmm. um, but there is another song on potentially another body of work that may come out at the latter part of this year, maybe next year, that is kind of more that maybe fulfills that tick box that we were going for initially. But yeah, serendipitously, I mean, like, you know, Jess really kind of said it as nearly a throwaway comment in some way. Well, not like it was, there was intention yeah, yeah. behind it, but we were really like, totally. don't know as to what that would look like or how that would happen per se. And and similarly, like, just to kind of like expand on what Jess was saying, like, Shukra was just kind of over, Spark was just kind of over. So I think we were both really kind of discussing the reconciliation of that and trying to figure out what we were as like solo artists if we were solo artists what would it look like to perform and create music again especially in the pandemic yeah um so then you applied for the music music Emma. yes the music industry stimulus program and um yeah I, I applied for that and and it was it was pretty last minute as the majority of my funding applications tend to be and um under pressure I just kind of came up with with an idea that I wanted to do which was you know once again being in the middle of lockdown and kind of thinking about having that time to think and, and what what really what healing meant for me what kind of the next part of our uh, journey personally and um you know with with my creative relationships what that looked like and, and I think a lot of it looked at healing and emotional catharsis and empowerment and and that's kind of a lot of a lot of the stuff that we we talk about in our songs very much revolves around those themes and then sonically I guess the only thing that kind of like Jeff working with Jeff and yeah kind of making the application to work with Jeff and Thomas who you had established friendships and part, like partner. absolutely yeah they were you know both both Jeff and Thomas are like incredibly busy people um and you know in the sense they're very successful and they work with a lot of different uh, amazing people and um I think Thomas is away in LA at the moment with the Coronas and Jeff has been touring with Gavin James for a Thomas couple of years Donahue. Thomas Donahue sorry yeah Jeff Warren occasion yes yes and um that was the producers we started working with. They were home for lockdown, so they decided to use that time to build up their portfolio. And they approached me uh, in Cornucopia one day. And uh, yeah, and then we decided to work together. Yeah, so that's kind of, yeah, that's the, that encap encapsulates the full sound and kind of direction of what was prescribed as initially being a disco song. And it kind of grew legs and arms into like something that in somewhat embodies it, but also is a, maybe a little bit fragrant with other, other styles there too. Just because you were both front women of your bands, Shukra and uh, Bark, did you find it, did it take a while to kind of figure out how you were going to work together? Or was it like, had you made music together before that it was very easy? Yeah. Oh, and I see what you're doing. You're looking for the tea, is it? Are yeah. we always I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me all the gas. <laughs> Tell me all the gas. Tea signing for the tea. Oh, yeah. It was, it was very much, it, it was, I think it was hugely dictated around around necessity because we we did a lot of writing on, on Zoom. You know, it was during that time where things were kind of opening up slightly and there was like these kind of glimmers of hope and connection. And then it was like, bam, crash. Um, so, yeah, I would say with the greater process between myself and Seda, it was very much based on necessity, you know, on lockdown and what, what was available to us. So we did a lot of stuff on Zoom um which was which was really interesting because that was the first time I'd ever like written songs in zoom and like sometimes we'd just be kind of writing together and like sending kind of demos sending lyrics over the chat um you know and then when we were when we had the availability you know Seed would come over to my place where I had a bit of a studio and um we'd work together there yeah but it was yeah it was yeah it was it was really what was available to us at the time 
Yeah. Yeah. And like to some degree, I think it was, you know, in terms of I don't I don't know if we had any massive I don't know if we had any massive consideration starting off as to whether or not like how would the dynamic of two lead singers necessarily work? Yeah, we didn't feel like how are we going to navigate being two lead vocalists performing or writing together? You know, we we have we have a lot in common and uh, we both worked as backing vocalists together. We both worked in multiple different collaborations and it just really felt like a collaboration like anything else. There wasn't a, yeah, a navi- navigation of, of two lead people. That really wasn't the vibe. Well, I would say, I would say from my end, um, like we've worked on a lot of projects where we've actually had crossover, like accidentally. So like I yeah. wrote Tummy Twice, let's say with uh, the Galaxy and then you would have performed it live for like a couple of different gigs especially like where I wasn't able to meet up so we knew that in terms of like how our voices would measure how people kind of perceive our voices that that would be received well I think that because you had applied for the Miss Brandt and really it had been a kind of a a serendipitous thing of your coming up with the like the pitch and the narrative and kind of spring things into motion that we talked about earlier uh, that I was kind of following your lead on it really uh, given that just given the assignment at hand but then I guess because because of the nature of how we were working on it we thought we had like three or four months to do it and then we had a short brief of like two or three songs of an EP to do and work with uh, Jeff and Thomason who had sent us production bits that they'd been working on for a while themselves. So I thought that like, yeah, I'm just throwing on some vocals or verse or whatever it is on this. But then as the lockdown kind of just kept prolonging, um, the extensions kind of kept, you know, kept getting pushed out. And also just our ability to like record together, flesh out ideas together, et cetera, kept, kept getting prolonged. Um, it grew into a scenario where actually we were kind of more collaborative and kind of like the things I was working on whenever I had a quieter moment meant that I was just like listening maybe to some other songs and then Jess would be quieter in other periods and listening to and writing songs to some of the bits that they sent us. So yeah, what what initially was maybe just an assignment from my end then kind of grew into more of a collaborative thing where we were actually nearly equal partisans in it by the time that we finished writing the songs and were ready to record them. And like the body of work that essentially uh, encompasses nearly an album's worth, it's like seven or eight songs now is very much a process of our being like, hey, Jeff, Thomas, maybe send in a couple more. We have a couple of months extensions out. Like we've done half of recording here and half recording there, but not enough that we can complete that song. So let's jump on the next thing and see if there's anything that's there. And now we have them all completed as far as like being written and more or less recorded, but now just being in the mixing stage. But uh, yeah, so that's kind of how it, how it grew. So the, the, the dynamic or the element of like trying to think of myself as like more of a backing singer or a lead singer didn't really come into play quite as much just because we were very organically responding to, well, I just want to keep writing to this stuff and I'm having a nice working dynamic with these people. So let's just see what happens. And if it goes nowhere grand, you know. I'm very much the intention as well for this was to keep, I don't, <laughs> keep ourselves sane over lockdown. It was, you know, or to sure. keep keep ourselves creative and, you know, reminding ourselves of of who we were. Um, during a time where it, it was very hard to, you know, kind of, int- you know, talk to people and to see, you know, our creativity reflected in the world around us, you know, because everything was was shut down. And, um, you know, and I, we very much discussed that in the beginning when, when we started writing was that, you know, we're doing this, you know, to feel a sense of creativity. We're doing this to feel a sense of connection and a sense of community. And that was really one of the main objectives um, during the writing process. Yeah. And did this grow out of the X Collective as well? Because you're both involved in that as well. I don't know what what's mm. the story with that at the moment. Yeah, no, it's still going. Um, I would still be pretty, pretty active there, um, more so in the live and kind of like 
DJing and more consultative stuff because my I guess like the, the stuff that I was involved in earlier on in the Days of X Collective is like somewhat done as far as I wrote a couple of songs and then they were released and now I kind of do a bit of backing and like some writing here and there. Um, it did kind of somewhat, I, I, like the timing of it was just kind of um, serendipitous more so than like that, that Sister Phoenix was spurred on by it because you like just separately, yeah. these conversations and our friendship was budding separate to the X Collective. And then yeah. I joined the X Collective and was doing stuff with that. And I think whenever you had writ, writ, like written that application for it, I was like, oh, I'm in this thing. And there's like a pool of really interesting musicians based in Dublin. And if we are figuring out what our new sound looks like, or if we are figuring out respectively as individuals as to like, how do we develop stuff that we're working on personally, this would be a really advantageous way to collaborate with people and see as to whether they would be good contributors to, to any of that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was kind of just like side by side and complementary, but not really spurred on or like intertwined per se. Yeah, but great, but great timing as well. You know, like when we did the, the songwriting session together, you know, myself and Sneeda had already written all, you know, together for a couple of months, so we yeah. already had that. And then you know, to bring to bring Tosin into the mix was just brilliant. Then you know, mm. to, for the three of us having the opportunity to go to Kilkenny and to write with with Liam Geddes. Mm. Uh, it was great and that's where we, we came up with Ascension so um but yeah I I have I have a lot of different projects at the moment so unfortunately I, I couldn't stay with with the X Collective but uh what they're doing is fantastic and I'm, I'm really grateful that I had the time to write with them yeah mm. and as an outcome serendipitously Owen we're here now gonna sing for Toshin's like solo gig there you go her solo piece doing the Aretha Franklin covers so if anything I guess in some cases like that collective was like really like instrumental in terms of like helping everyone build those kind of collaborative dynamics and chemistry so that for anyone's respective projects that yeah there was that support there mm. you guys played some live shows last summer uh, I saw you at all together now um did, I, that was kind of part of an ex-collective thing as well I think on the stage wasn't it something like something oh, sure. like that yeah. Uh, Sister Phoenix separately played. Yeah, yeah. The global that, was, that, was, stage. that was that was separate. Yeah. So 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 X Collective did the the Jemison, and and then uh, we we played the what's what's the name of Global it? Roots. Global Roots. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so we played Global Roots, which was really really good fun, and we had a lot of the X Collective members there supporting us, which was fantastic. Yeah. We played with Ryan McGelland. Ryan McClelland. McClelland. Uh, yes. I hope I'm getting your name right, Ryan. If you're listening. If yeah. I didn't, I'm sorry. And uh, and Lewis Young as well. Yeah. And so Lewis is a member of the X Collective too. And yeah, so the, so the two of them were up with us on stage, and yeah, it was just it was a really really good gig, and it was great to be able to perform the songs together and um to start getting gig fit again because I was not gig fit I'm still I mean I'm still struggling I'm still struggling getting my, my fitness back as a gigger but uh but yeah yeah it was amazing it was really really good fun when you're playing live shows like that before you've actually released music is it just kind of like testing the waters making sure oh yeah you know the ideas that we had on zoom and the stuff that we were you know doing in the practice room actually does work live is that kind of how you treated those shows if you can remember back to last summer I think it was testing the waters like the songs were written they were essentially being mixed at that point yeah. and we had really aimed we tried to kind of release something at the end of the year it didn't necessarily happen but we I think we were very much kind of like we got these gigs as a litmus test and also with the goal of hopefully releasing stuff closer to the time of those gigs so that was kind of the lead into that and like that learning curve every single time that you have a re like a project release as to mm -hmm. what are the considerations that you kind of need to um factor coming up to release but uh also, I guess it was like one of the few opportunities in real life. Like obviously things kind of 
went back to live in February and like it, it felt like a turnkey scenario. I don't know how you felt about it, but I felt like definitely the like life escalated and accelerated at a pace that we were really only kind of getting back to grips with. So mm. thinking about Sister Phoenix, we were we were sure of what everything sounded like and um, looked like behind the scenes and having recorded stuff, but not so much in a live gigging context. And so um like we we were kind of prepped for like a very minimalist gig with a backing track and and Ryan we were also primed for we were also primed for a full band scenario but like Ryan and Lewis alike were busy gigging so the long and short of it was we we took on those gigs hoping to kind of I understand what is what does Sister Phoenix need to look like in a festival context what does it need to look like supporting someone in the Sugar Club for instance which we did with Danny G um and yeah, and it very much was learning curve and we kind of got out of it what we needed to and have refined the live gigging process now since. So I think we're a lot more ready and excited to to get back to it now this year. Great. Um, so Benefactor of Love, tell me about that. Why was that uh, the first single? Was it the obvious choice that you, that you had in mind? Yeah. So I guess we have seven or eight songs, as I mentioned, and we have decided to split them up into two EPs and kind of just soft launch ourselves out there. And Benefactor of Love was one of the big kind of solo uh, well, in our perception, one of the big solo singles um, from the the three-bodied, uh, three-song EP that we're going to release this year. So the first EP is called In Water. It features two so- or three songs, Benefactor of Love, In Water, uh, which is a song as well as the, the EP title, and Clay. Um, and the two were kind of like a slower-paced type of uh, pop, alt-pop ballad, which I think is quite different for both of us, respectively. I don't think that we've done anything in the exact type of style as as these two songs whereas Benefactor felt familiar but also felt different enough that we we kind of thought it would be a good statement launch of ourselves also the essence of the song very much kind of captured the joyous period of songwriting I guess because it was like a time of like lots of introspection and self-reflection and writing about growing like growing up as individuals but also just like nurturing ourselves and kind of trying to like um find a better balance of like our own self-care and also the worlds that we're in like creatively we were saying being a musician in in the music business is quite hard and it can be taxing on your emotional and like mental health and all these different things so it very much reflected what we were focused on at that time but at the same time it's just a fat banger that people can dance to that and and even if they didn't have to engage with the lyrics or try and kind of tap into the sentiment of it that like the loose are going to get you know the, the hips are going to get loose um the, you know the vibe in the room is going to be good so that just felt it felt appropriate and right for us to, to kickstart the, the Sister Phoenix project that way. Great. And you also answered my last question there, which was going to be like, what your next plans are. It sounds like you've got the EP planned. You've got the second EP planned. If you've got live shows <laughs> lined up as well, like I presume that you're, you're eyeing up festival season 2023 as well. Yeah, we're, we're basically sizing up all of the festivals uh, where we've got the second single kind of lined up as well and kind of starting to work on that. And we have a really cool music video that we were just shooting yesterday with Bonnie Boo, whose real name is Ned, um, a kind of cabaret, hip hop, just like a multi, multi-talented multi dancer. And Deborah Dickinson as well, who would have performed with Jess in Hive City Legacy Um the play that was on in, in the Dublin Fringe Festival. So the video is going to be popping. That's going to come out probably in like two weeks time. Singles coming out in two two months time, probably. Um, and off the back of that, basically, we're just going to try and get a few customer or festival slots. We are also looking at a listening party and kind of a launch probably for the EP towards later in the summer. So that's kind of where our focus is, is at, is like launching correctly, getting the types of festival slots that we want to do. And I think that our sites are also kind of just like less insular and really like this the type of music that we're releasing of course is like super popular in Ireland and there's so much happening in that space since we started 
in our respective bands years ago. But I think that we're very much like, well, how can we like up level what we've done in Bark and Shuka respectively and, and as individuals? And where does Sister Phoenix like, yeah, fit in the general contemporary alternative uh, neo soul sphere and, and hopefully like the likes of London and other places in Europe are in sight in the next couple of months. Great. Well, I look forward to seeing where you slot in and uh, <laughs> uh, great start with Benefactor of Love and best of luck with uh, everything that's going to follow. Sound out. Thank you. And thanks so much for your time today. Looking For You by DeShota, one of four tracks on his brilliant debut EP, Never Enough, which is out today, Wednesday, March 15th. And again, as I said at the top of the show, he plays The Workman Cellar tonight, March 15th. Never Enough is inspired by the experience of avoidance and self-sabotage, with influences including the Blue Nile, Talking Heads and David Lynch movies, two of which we talk specifically about in the following chat. You'll hear the Jackie Beverly collab Sultan at the end of the show as well and hear how that all came together. And as noted, the show released a couple of tracks a few years ago, but the Never Enough EP sounds like a real statement of intent announcing himself to the world. I can't wait to hear more from him. Let's listen to the rest of Looking For You and get into the chat with the Too late, I'm already somebody Already somebody else's Turn on the light and see Just wait I'm already somebody else You're already somebody So you've got a couple of singles up on your Spotify from 2019, three, four years ago almost. Um, and then nothing for a couple of years until Looking For You came out last year. I'm guessing the COVID played a part in that, but di- did you kind of use that time to reassess what you wanted the show to be? Or was it just you weren't feeling inspired to make music or what, what, was, the, uh, what was the break for? I, I think it was a combination of all those things. Um, 
I think when I was sort of preparing whatever I was going to release next, part of what I wanted to do was to be able to play live again. I think a lot of people were hedging that way. You know, it wasn't like I had a big online following anyway that where, you know, the crowd is baying for my next tune or anything like that. I I wanted to kind of lean into the live side. Like, because I was thinking a lot about that and um, when I was going to be releasing again and like um, people might ask about that gap. And like, I think honestly, when I think back to the start of the pandemic, we thought it was only going to be like two weeks or three weeks and then that turned into slightly longer and then it kept getting pushed out. And then when I did start working on the EP properly, it was like, okay, well, we can we can take a little bit longer on this then and maybe like um try a couple of different versions of the tracks and tease out the sound a bit more and then like i was working with ross fortune on, on the ep as well he's uh, makes music it's benny smiles actually and uh he, he started to get quite busy then as well so there was a covid was kind of impacting everybody's uh you know work outside of the ep as well um like their working life and then uh we, we got a grant to do some visuals so the whole kind of timeline got a bit extended and then you're like okay well We've worked on it for for this long. It would be nice to give it the best push possible when it does come time to releasing. And then when it came time to releasing, it's like, oh, well, there's a huge backlog of music that everybody else wants to release too. So at that point, it was kind of in for a penny and for a pound. I can still keep writing like in the background, which is what I did do. Like um, I had a friend that like lived near me and was in my bubble, a guy called Jake Curran, who co-wrote two of the tracks on the EP. And uh, we ended up doing like a whole bunch of songs and demos just kind of remotely or just in each other's houses. And then we we rented a couple of places when the um, lockdown uh, conditions allowed us to and, and kind of kept going. So, yeah, there, there's there's like a lot of stuff there. I kind of have to organize it into will it belong in an EP or would these be singles or is an album or should I just throw some of them out, you know? So, um, yeah, I would say it was still a productive time, but I was very it didn't feel productive i still felt like i'm just kind of waiting here other people are kind of getting on with their lives and i'm not but i'd say actually i probably did the best i could with the time given the situation i was in Um, yeah certainly certainly sounds like it am i right in saying that jake plays guitar with the likes of nia vregan and uh circa richardson yeah that's right yeah neve actually um used to share a studio with neve above like what i say studio was a project studio it was above the workman's and uh Jake got offered the the space, so Neve and me and Jake had that uh, for a while. We never never wrote with Neve or anything like that. She was always kind of off uh, doing a thing. I think she's off in Australia at the moment. But uh, yeah, that's the that's the Jake, all right. Um, he's moved to London now since he moved there last January. So don't see him as much now. But um, yeah, we'll hopefully get to finish what we worked on anyway over the next few months. That's the plan anyway. Do you see that as something separate to the Deshoda project? It's funny because we we the name we have on it like quietly is police cops like from uh, the <laughs> Simpsons. <laughs> Jake is like this encyclopedic knowledge of the Simpsons. It's just like one of his weird quirks, and uh, we were just I think usually like there'd be a few cans involved or whatever when we were doing this, and we just uh, we call it police cops and we call it this. So I think the track Roy Orbison on the EP originally the folder it was in was called Police Cops, but Jake. Um, I think because of the the world he's in and kind of the like because of his career as a session musician, he's like he he's happy to write with other people and for them to kind of release it under their moniker. And I was kind of already trying to build a bit, bit of momentum with the shoulder, so it kind of makes sense at the moment to release them as the shoulder tracks. But I I do like the idea of doing something called Police Cops further yeah. down the road, like as a <laughs> a one off thing, you know, because uh, it's it's kind of like two two that's the kind of two mates side of it, you know, making music together thing as opposed to the 
I'm trying to be a very serious artist and release my stuff then, you know. Mm. Um, looking for you was the first taster that we got of the EP last year and like it still sounds so great like uh i was just listening to it there over the over the weekend as part of the ep um like did that feel like a breakthrough for you in terms of like you know what the the showed in 2022 23 sounds like as opposed to 2019 yeah it certainly felt very different like um even the the process of making it was very different to the way i would have went about the 2019 tracks um like Ross, to be honest, I have to credit Ross Fortune like with a lot of the sound on that because I had a like I wrote a lot of the like all the parts are mostly me and then Jake and then the arrangement was all pretty much the same. But I sent it over to Ross and then I didn't hear from him for a few days. He was like, OK, this is going to be a shot in the dark. And just I just kind of inspiration struck and I went with it and um, it had this like a much shinier kind of um dare I say, kind of like French disco house kind of be sound going on. And I was, I do, I was sitting on the canal when I heard it. We were having a beer. It was like the canal became many people's local in Dublin <laughs> during the lockdown. And I was kind of like, let's, yeah, let's go with this. Because initially I was kind of like, oh, it's quite different to what my demo was. But the song was already a co-write with the fellow called Richie McCourt. So I was like, do you know what? I'm just going to lean into the collaboration element here and just, have fun with it and like everything is so bloody miserable at the moment Let, let's go with something that sounds a bit more you know fresh or upbeat and uh i think the experience of that song and the ep was kind of me learning to be more of a the director producer rather than the guy who's in his room trying to do everything because i think like the reason i started to work with ross was i realized there were there were gaps or i felt there were gaps in what i was doing i could get something so far but if i held it against something that was like a reference or something I really admired. I was like, you know, initially when maybe you start doing this, it's like, oh, it's a mixed thing. But then you get something mixed and then you're like, oh, it's not a mixed thing. It's a production thing or whatever. And it's it's all these little um, pieces of the puzzle you're trying to put together. So I, I wanted to do, I was happy to do it that way as well because the 2019 tracks, I think I probably, I worked with Darren Olin on them. And if he listens to this, he'll probably know, I, like I probably went went through some of those mixes like with a like a fine tooth comb and kind of take some of the phone out of it and you're like like it, it, it wasn't painstaking or any, anything but you're just like you're too it was too over analytical and too like trying to perfect something and like there's something really i've realized now there's something very vain about that as well like looking in a mirror you know because the song is a reflection of you and if you're trying to you should trust the people that are involved in the process and accept the imperfections of it and maybe that's that's that takes a lot of the pressure off you. It makes it more fun. And um, it means you, you get to have other people part of your endeavor as well, which is really rewarding. So I think it was it was a real, to, to go back to your original question, um, yeah, it was a different process and it felt more like I was like the director in a film rather than the, the guy just up in his room painting all of his paintings and bringing them to a gallery, if that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm guessing that the press release called you a solo artist, but the amount of names that you mention and kind of that idea of being the overseer of the project, does it feel more collaborative to you, Deshoda? Or does it feel like a so solo project? It, it does feel more collaborative, yeah. But it, it kind of goes in like in and out. It was like, um, I think I originally called it Deshoda because I wanted to leave the door open for like, maybe this will become a band someday. And I knew that um 
I never, I wasn't like one of these, I was always one of these sort of an explorer, I guess. I was like, I'll try this. It'll be an experiment. We'll see what happens. I know I'm not a genius or anything like that. So I, I'll need other people along the way, whether I, you know, I contract with them or they, um, they do it as a collaboration or it becomes a band thing. So it, it it's kind of feels like, yeah, maybe that's come to fruition in, in the original sense I intended. But part of the process of making it um, got me to reflect very deeply on why it was I was doing this and what I was trying to say. And specifically that happened when I started to work with Mark O'Brien, who um, releases music as Royal Yellow. He used to be in a band years ago called Enemies. Um, I actually didn't know Enemies that well, but he lived with Jake, you see. And um, we he came over to the studio and then we worked on a, a track, which we I don't think we've ever, no, we haven't released it. I actually found it the other day, but um, it was cool. We were just talking a lot kind of on a, deep level about music and like we didn't get to do a lot of that during the pandemic anyway so um I was probably really open to that as well because you know you end up operating in isolation so much during the lockdown but he I basically asked him to be involved in the visuals because I loved what he did with Royal Yellow and I loved his music and there was like this triangulation of his his message the music and uh, his visuals that I just felt was so uh, cohesive so I was like can you come on board and kind of help me steer this a little bit because I don't have experience in this area. Um, so he, he took a listen to the tracks and he said, uh, I, I think this is like, there's a lot of self-sabotage in there, man. And as soon as he said it, I was like, a lot of people accuse me of being like a self-saboteur, like people close to me. And I was like, oh, that feels like strangely kind of powerful and like a bit scary to kind of uh, engage with. And I knew then that, okay, this is, the, this is the right way to go and it means there's a central idea around it and all that and there was something strangely psychoanalytical about all those like me sitting on the couch and like listening to Mark say this and then him asking me questions and then kind of teasing out this vision and picture so that that's this maybe the solo artist element of it is like me uh, just a pretty normal I would say guy kind of pouring out his psyche into what he's doing but also using or you know working with others to help realize that vision so that's what i mean by coming in between being the solo artist and then being something more collaborative to actually realize it and so it's it's a bit i'd say it's neither one nor the other but ultimately it has to be me that kind of pushes things forward and um tries to get it to the next milestone or whatever yeah that's uh talking about self-sabotage that the pr says that the EP Never Enough, which you're releasing on Wednesday, March 15th, is inspired by the experience of avoidance and self-sabotage. So you, rather than taking it as, a, I don't know, as criticism for Mark or something, you ran with it and decided to, is is all of the EP about that idea? Is it just like little bits here and there that you kind of explore? I think there's elements of it in, in each track and it was something I didn't really, I think it was so anytime I write a song, I think there's always that in it. It's always very like introspective and yeah, it's all about me and probably feeling I don't really fit into the world. It's probably the, there's some sort of teenage angst going on there. Like uh, my parents are divorced. So I wonder, was it like, did I become an adult when I like a little bit older and then have like an arrested development in other aspects of my life? I don't know. I think about this a lot too much and I'm not certainly not special. I think everybody has a level of this in their life and I find it quite, you know, the, there's an idea of the forbidden around it. Should you think about these or explore them? But then also, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. So I think, um, 
I think it's in everything I've written, but I think it really got honed working with Mark and him kind of helping me, you know, put a framework around it. And then that was really important for working with Roar then, because if you're going to a director, it's like if he has a central theme or a vision to kind of run with, it was much easier for him to kind of, oh yeah, we can, we can do this or whatever, especially when you're dealing with like resources and budgets. So, um, I, w- I would say it was something I realized more in retrospect, but as soon as he said it, I was like, you're absolutely right. That's completely everything that this is about. And it's not that it, it's what it's about, but it's where the energy for what I do comes from trying to reckon with self-sabotage and why the hell we do it, you know? And are you over it now or are you still self-sabotaging? I'd say it's like a process. I'd say it's like, um, once you, it's like that whole thing. I mean, I've been to in therapy before and, uh, I read a lot of books about that sort of thing. And, you know, when you become aware of something and initially it can be a bit shocking because you're like, oh, I couldn't possibly be like that, especially if you have like an ego. I, I wouldn't say I'm a very egotistical person, but I, I've learned recently that maybe ego ego also means that you're trying to protect yourself as well. It doesn't necessarily mean that you, you think you're some, you know, great guy or genius or something. And the awareness of something means, okay, I, I know what that is. I can put it up on the shelf there and look at it and take it down when I need it. It doesn't have to be something that rules my life anymore. Um, so I'm, I have to actively challenge myself to, um, to, you know, to you know, work past any, any feelings of self-doubt or sabotage. And I think it's probably quite common, especially if you're trying to establish yourself or get out there, like you maybe want to be perceived as somebody that's really together and, has their vision intact and is cool or whatever. And like, I'm not like any of those things. So it's like the great thing about working with Mark Aurora is like, they're also like, no, uh, forget all that. You know, this is what it is. This is the, this is the art bit. And you're like, oh, that's, if it feels a bit scary, but also like the good thing, then it, it's much easier to chase. So it's kind of re- rewarding then in its own way and whatever happens, happens. So I wouldn't say, I don't think we'll ever be over it. Maybe you just get to another level where you're like, oh, I, I was doing it there and I didn't realize it. And you only, only through conversation or maybe through art, you would realize it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a real 80s feel to the EP as well. Is I'm presuming that's your favorite period of music, is it? I, I think so. And it's starting to like, it, I do feel like it is a bit cheesy, like, you know, so, um, but, you know, I have to be honest, when I really got into like, the idea of writing or trying to craft a song it was the band prefab sprout i think when i was about 18 or 19 i discovered them i'd heard them on like the dave fanning's fab 50 when i was like 13 or 14 i kind of skipped it i was like i oh, know that sounds a bit too nice where's the where's the rock stuff or where's like the cure or something a bit more like that but um i kind of liked the idea that a song could be that delicate sounding and still be you know take you on this journey it felt a bit more vulnerable like the idea of since i used to hate since when i was a you know a kid i, I only liked les pauls and stuff like that you know and then kind of now look and, at you yeah now look at me you know uh still still playing a, i still have a gibson fc but uh yeah it's uh it's it's funny like um i'd say it all came from that and i never really shook it you know even when i want to not do that it's like oh uh, let, let's get a Juno plug-in going or let's you know it, it, it's it's always kind of there and then it's like and then there's a lot of it around now and you know you'd say like is there much point of doing it if you don't think you can do like a really good slant on it um you know especially like those kind of subgenres like synth wave or retro wave or whatever like there's so many different subgenres and spin-offs of this 80s thing but uh I think I think it's there but hopefully it's not like 
I kind of like I'd like to get away from it next if possible. Um, I feel like the first two singles are more in a like um, there's a bit of the eighties, but not too much. And I kind of I I might go back to that direction next. Try and use more quote unquote real instruments. Um, and try and try and ground it in the now a little bit more. Um, if possible, <laughs> I'll try, but invariably you'll probably uh, gravitate towards something a, a bit 80 sounding as well. You have a track called Roy Orbison on the EP as well. Is that like, do, how much investigating do I have to do with that track? Or is it literally <laughs> about the man himself? Uh, no, that's like complete um, train of thought. Like, um, Jay, I was right, wrote that with Jake and Jake could be real. Like when we meet up to do something, he'd be like, okay, we have the we've got the arrangement or we, you know, we figured out like our rough arrangement and the music and then people like, okay, there's the SM58. Now you go and sing some lyrics now. And I'll be like, no, I really don't want to. I want to go away and be on my own. I'm too shy. And then people like, no. So we did it. And then I just started singing. That was like, honestly, one of the first things that um came out of my mouth. And I, I remember that week I had been reading about Roy Orbison. I think I was on Wikipedia in work when I wasn't supposed to be. And <laughs> I remember reading this, like this real tragedy in his life where like, I think he had children and they died in like a fire in the house or something like that. I didn't know about that. And um, I just remember thinking like, and that he kind of threw, threw himself into art after that. He wasn't the same man, you know, all that kind of, that kind of story that tends to happen with people. And I don't know, I re really admired that about him because you never really heard it. And then I kind of thought, well, we all kind of have that in, some way in life everybody has some sort of darkness that's happened to them and then they have a way of sublimating that um through their work or their creator or anything really so i i think also like i used to spend a lot of time on the bus listening to podcasts and current affairs and stuff like that and worrying about client you know climate anxiety and all that sort of thing so i think it's there's a lot of that being channeled through the song through uh the vehicle of like popular culture and then i think D david lynch is the real reference there because i think i'd watched blue velvet as well around the same time it's kind of like you know a uh, troubled young man in his 20s has a brain explosion that's what that song is <laughs> I, I was actually asking someone about their favorite david lynch film uh over the weekend any is it blue velvet for you uh i don't think so actually um i've actually only seen that have you seen it once or twice for david lynch um i think Oh, it's not easy. It would change a lot. Yeah. I've put you on the spot. I've put you on the spot. Yeah. I mean, on some days it could be the straight story, which is like, um, I just love the fact that it's a Disney movie directed by David Lynch. Um, and it still feels like a Lynch movie, even though it's not like a dark movie. Um, I think a, a Razorhead actually I've kind of gone back to recently and been thinking a lot about it. I saw the Babadook a while ago and it has that German expressionist thing and there's a bit of that going on. So, I think, and there's some of his films I haven't seen. Like, I've never seen The Elephant Man. Um, and uh, it's a long time since I've seen Mulholland Drive, but I think I'd probably go with, um, there's one I'm missing from the 80s as well. I know now, it's just because you put me on the spot. But yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah it's, it's too, it's honestly too hard to say, but uh, I, I'd recommend his memoir, actually, if you've never read that. Um, oh, okay. Room to Dream, the podcast version or the audiobook is really worth a listen because it's like interviews and, just a lot of stuff on creativity, kind of that like Rick Rubin kind of space, you know. Okay, great. N nice to get a recommendation like that <laughs> in the course of a conversation. But back to the music, back to your music. Um, the fourth and final track on the EP is called Sultan, a collaboration with Jackie Beverly. Tell me about uh, how that came together. 
Yeah, so I'd known Jackie for um, a couple of years um, and I'd, I'd liked her music before I'd met her, but I think originally the connection was we both worked with the same producer for like our, our earliest stuff. I know I haven't released that much to kind of say that, but uh, Darren Oland in Wexford. So we kind of, there was a sort of a, a third party connection, let's say. And then I'd, I'd met her a couple of times at gigs. And then um, I suppose initially when you kind of meet, you know, if, you, if you're in Dublin and you're meeting people, you can be shy about like, oh, uh, let's meet up and ride or whatever. Or you think, you know, because everybody has their own thing going on. But then you kind of realize that it, we're all doing this because we all like creating and music and we should we should do more of this. Um, so I just kind of said, uh, here, let's, um, we, do you want to work on a track and maybe it'll be on the EP? And I, I kind of had Sultan in mind because I had the chorus for that since about 2018. Could never write verses that I liked for it. I'd even tried one more time before we met up just to kind of rule it out completely because then we could have possibly gone on to write something new. Um, but but it was just it just worked out really well, I, I think, for both of us, because um, Jackie hadn't been planning on, I think, releasing or working on anything, but was happy to kind of slot into what, what I was doing. But I do feel like it's very much both of our songs. And um, we actually recorded a good bit of it around the corner from here in uh, Avenue Road Studios and Portobello, um, the guy who owns that uh, Fiocra Kinder, he was away for a few months and me and Jake had rented it. So, uh, yeah, we just did it in like a few evening sessions after work, you know, and um, Jackie was great. She just had a really nice awareness about like how the vocals should sit and just um, stuff about energy and arrangement that I, I wasn't, I wouldn't necessarily see, you know, it's just if you have another perspective, it can give you a, a fresh approach on the track. So that, that's kind of how it happened, really. Did the chorus change? You said that you had it from 2018. Did that actual chorus stay the same throughout? Um, pre- pretty much, yeah. Um, I think I might have had a couple of alternate lyrics, but the melody and most of the lyrics, I'd say, was the same. The verse progression, I think, was the same. And then there was like a bit of a... I had a cheesier bridge in it as well. And Jackie, like, red card of that. She was like, no. <laughs> I she doesn't like bridges so uh, <laughs> and I was like so th- there's somewhat of a bridge in there it's like a compromised bridge uh it's it's funny I get what she's saying it's just like one of those instincts that you grow up listening to a lot of like pop you know pop music in the old vein there's oh here's the middle eight so um yeah it, it didn't but I feel like the meaning of the song or just expanded a bit I think when I was writing it I was like there was a bit of a breakup thing going on a bit of a disastrous one actually and uh which was a complete mess and then when Jackie came at it it was like somebody else telling their own story and then I'd had mine so it's like but this is still a common story this is like a human thing we all experience and uh, I really liked that it just felt like it expanded another dimension when Jackie came in I don't know about the bridge but it does sound like the Blue Nile were the big influence on this song particularly the outro according to the press release Uh, I don't think I've talked about the Blue Nile at all like oh really like certainly not on the podcast probably like once or twice maybe in my life so please well, have more. <laughs> what what is it about the blue nile that's so good and um, i i think there's a number of reasons that they become attractive i say that like possibly one of the first things that endears people to the blue nile is like who the hell are this band and why haven't we heard of them you know they're they they're great anyone who hears them like there's even a bunch of my friends i was kind of pushing them on a couple of years ago and they were like oh yeah whatever and then two years later it was like Gaff, you know the blue Nile, blah 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 and i was like 
um yeah I, I told you and I didn't want to be that guy because you know it's kind of pathetic as well but um it, but for some reason they just never had that um big mass following the way some of their other contemporaries would have had like maybe even like I don't know could you put Deacon Blue or somebody in that category as well just Scottish uh kind of synthy indie uh, pop bands but uh I heard them first when I was about 12. My dad played them for me on headphones uh, like at night. And it was, I remember this, remember there being something haunting about it. It was that song, Tinsel 10 on the Rain, which has the same, similar sounding synth to Running Up That Hill, actually. That kind of, um, I don't know what it is. Is it like a fair light or something like that anyway? Um, and it, it was like, oh, that's a weird sound. You know, that's interesting. And then just the imagery in the song and everything kind of stuck with me. Um, you know, that line, the red car and the fountain, but like, I never, I didn't really get it. I was too young. You know, that music is kind of like, there's a lot of heartbreak in their music. And if you're, if you're a kid, you kind of don't really have a frame of reference for that. Well, I didn't. And then when I was about 25, I, I came back to them. I don't know what it was specifically. I, maybe my dad played it again at home. I was staying with him for a bit and he actually would make mini disc compilations of stuff. You know, he still, still rocks the mini disc <laughs> to this day. But, uh, yeah, I just kind of fell absolutely in love with them. I even found a great biography about them that, that a guy who lives across the road from the singer wrote, a journalist, and it was just just this whole world of like just all, all this delicate, beautiful music made by people that just seem very real. And I think the fact that they're from Glasgow and, you know, and for the most part from Dublin, there's a kind of a connection there as well, at least in how the world around them would have looked when they were writing the songs and, you know, a, a comparison with Dublin. So it all just kind of fell into place and um i also read the singer said they tried to achieve if anything with their music a sense of stillness and i i think probably like i'm someone that lives in my own head quite a lot and the music probably gave me a sense of that as well i don't know it's just beautiful stuff you know i just like the the air in the music as well like um and just the small drums the 808s but still a big cinematic sound and like how do you do that and just beautiful music you know great well i've added them to my queue on spotify so i'm looking forward to uh delving into them uh, a little bit more today anyway um you supported 49th and maine on their irish tour at the end of 2022 how was that great to hang out with the lads and just see them every night and see just how much bigger they're getting as well i'm guessing yeah, it was like their gigs were pretty insane in terms of like the the crowd. Like I remember the Galway gig was like, I mean, I'd say m- most of the crowd didn't like get me at all, like because it'd be a bit different, you know. Which is is grand, you know. But uh, like the place was even. Like I was like, oh, things could kick off here. Like you know, not not in a bad way. Just like people up on the <laughs> shoulders and all that, and um, knew all the words to the songs. And it's like it's pretty insane when you see bands like that have only started recently and that are Irish, you know, did doing that and filling venues. Um like the Academy gig as well. That that was heaving. Um they you know they they've they've done great and they um they yeah they've obviously kind of like they've they've really connected with people and the music is resonating, you know, in that in the club environment. But like when you when I listen to their music like online, it's actually kind of a um they they don't sound like bangers in the club sense it could be more like you could be listening to them at home or when you're driving like I, I don't know driving in music has always been a big thing for me I think that was one of the reasons they started making music but I did notice that there was like there was a bit of light and shade to what they were doing but uh on a personal level it was just great to get out there playing again and kind of get rid of some nerves and anxiety of like 
playing in front of people again, especially like doing solo set where you're relying on Ableton and kind of like overthinking that. But just just to get out there and play and meet meet real people and people a couple of people want to follow you on Spotify and maybe they'll come to another gig and like just that organic, you know, grassroots, if I can use that word. The old fashioned way of kind of just getting your music out there because a lot of stuff is about like being online and social media and that and like you know, as useful a tool and all as that might be, it's not real in the sense that if you go and play and you're in a real room with someone and especially getting out of Dublin, you know, it's just just great to get out of here. Everything can have quite a Dublin centric focus and like there's amazing venues all around the country and people that love to sort support music around the country and it was just wonderful to see it, you know. But really loved the Dolan's gig in Limerick actually. That was particularly like that one. Great, great. Um, it sounds like you're sitting on a load of new music uh, that you might be releasing over the course of the next year. You're playing the Workman Cellar on March 15th. What plans have you for the rest of the year? Have you thought that far ahead? Are you just looking as far as Wednesday night? <laughs> At the moment, it, it, uh, Wednesday is kind of in my rear view mirror and in the front of my windscreen. But <laughs> uh, I think uh, really, really what I'd like to do is just kind of laugh straight into finishing um, a lot of demos that I've kind of um, well not a lot of probably just a handful of them that I, I think I'd like to release later this year um, whether that will be kind of singles or another EP um, I'll, I'll see how things go I kind of I have a couple of ideas for the direction I'd like to take it in next um, visually and in terms of the sound and I've uh, I'm finishing up my job at the end of the month so I'm just gonna like go straight into it for a couple of months and see how far I can push the boat out just for myself and then kind of borrow like the process and the experiences of working with like um especially mark and roar on the visual side of the ev and just trying to i just felt that really worked for me in terms of try to create a vision and and go after it and build it around that way rather than kind of um go go about it in a sort of um not not rushed but just just in a more considered way for myself so that I, I feel there's a story being told. I think that's what I'd like to do next. So, uh, and fortunately I'm going to have the time to do it. So, and then, uh, yeah, I want to play a couple of more gigs. So hopefully going to announce some of those soon on the old socials and so on. Great. Well, uh, congrats on the release of the Never Enough EP and best of luck with uh, quitting the job and everything that's <laughs> going to follow. Cheers, I'll need it. <laughs> Soft sheets that form on the rise See it drifting in calmer tides You breathe, I breathe too It's sad but we're in it to
Get close to me 